Okay, welcome to the podcast. Today we're very lucky to have Judge Alm, who's running for city prosecutor. How's it going, Judge Alm? Very good, thank you for inviting me. Right on, so uh, my first question for you is, for those who don't really follow the judiciary very much, who is Stephen Alm? Well, I was born and raised here in Hawaii. Uh, I lived first in Manoa, then Kaimuki. My parents are both professors at UH. My older brother Robbie and I went to University Lab School. Uh, I worked for four summers at Dole Cannery. Right I needed a sport after, I played all the sports in high school, I needed a sport after that, so I went down to Kalakaua Gym to learn how to box. Uh, kind of fittingly, my first trip to Oahu Prison was for a fight. Second fight was against Marky Benez out in Waianae. Uh, I had two years at UH, then went, uh, my parents were in education, so I, I, I transferred to Oregon in order to have a whole different environment there. And good timing, because I met my wife, Haunani, who is a Kamehameha graduate. Kind of, we took turns going to law school, and I actually went to law school with the idea of being a prosecutor. That was the plan. Came back here after that and started working at the prosecutor's office. Wow, right on. Um, Speaking of the prosecutor's office, you're running for city prosecutor. So why Judge Om candidate for city prosecutor versus the field? First, this campaign is all about restoring trust to the prosecutor's office. And I think I'm the best candidate to do that for a couple of reasons. One, I have a lot of supervisory experience. And apart from Mr. Kaneshiro's handpicked successor, Dwight Nanamoto, who's acting prosecutor now. I don't believe any of the other candidates have supervised anything, and certainly not any other prosecutors. So I was a team captain, felony team captain at the prosecutor's office. I was then head of the 31 deputy district and family court division, largest division in the office where you really teach young lawyers how to be good prosecutors, how to be ethical, how to uh, be skilled trial attorneys. Then I ran the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then I was a judge uh, for 15 years, uh, supervising the court behavior of deputy prosecutors, public defenders. Uh, I did over 200, supervised and presided over 200 jury trials, and um, started innovative programs, improving drug court, making probation work better. And I feel a sense of obligation to go back to the office I started in, my wife started there too, clean it up, get it back on track, get it running ethically, get it skilled, and get it a place where young deputies want to go work. Yeah, restoring trust is super important. Every single interview that I've seen you and the other candidates on, that's like, first and foremost, the question that gets asked. So I'd like to ask a different version of that. Um, Of course, the situation that happened with Kathy K. Aloha abusing her prosecutor um, powers were just unbelievable. And it, it is sort of like a black swan situation because who would have thought that could happen? However, I do believe there are bad actors out there and eventually you might have a smart person who is the next Kathy K. Aloha. So what safeguards could you implement into the office upon election so that we don't have another Kathy K. Aloha situation? Well, there are a lot of things you have to do. First is creating a culture of high ethical standards and doing justice, not just winning cases. Uh, At the same time, nobody should be in a position of of authority or even a line deputy where you operate when there's a conflict of interest. She never should have been 
in a supervisory position making calls on whether, whether police officers should be charged or not, given the fact that she's married to the chief of police. Yeah. You know, you want to hire good people because you don't want to micromanage your supervisors. You want to hire good people, let them do their job. And that goes back into my experience. I have uh, selected a lot of supervisors over the years. When I was at district court, I was able to select supervisors. So Loretta Sheehan, Tom Brady, uh, Kevin Takata was involved, Ron, now Judge Johnson. When I was at the United States Attorney's Office, Elliot Inoki, Flo Nakakuni, who became U.S. Attorney, uh, John Payton, Les Osborne, Mike Chun. I have a history of, I think, using good judgment in hiring good people to do that. So you do that. I think you also should set up a mentoring program where you have a mentor who's outside of your chain of command. So if you have any concerns or issues, you'll have somebody to go to, to, to make that happen. But we will have to look at all of her cases if there's, they're standing still around uh, and take appropriate action. It could mean nothing if she just passed it on to somebody, if she was actively involved. It could mean up to dismissing the case. You know, we just, and look for any other corruption that's going on. And I see, you know, Mr. Miski has been indicted. Uh, he had a, some contacts with the office. I think he was hired at one point for that domestic violence safe house. We'll have to look at all sorts of things. I could tell when some of the candidates kind of low-key low criticize each other. Um, you guys have been actually really spot on and have been really cordial in this sometimes dirty politics yeah. uh, campaigning situation. But when you talk about all your experience, sometimes other candidates, they don't name you, but then they do sort of turn that around. They say, oh, well, that experience, those programs, those things are all in the past. And then twice I've heard the term he's out of touch or somebody is out of touch. How do you respond to when other candidates kind of low-key say that like, mm -hmm. oh, he's out of touch just because you talk about the things that you've done in the past? Uh -huh. Well, part of it is I don't think they have much else to talk about. I expected somebody to play the age card mm -hmm. with this. Uh, but it's experience. And it's not only having done jobs, it's done jobs successfully. Because put yourself in their situation. You know, one candidate uh, maybe worked for the prosecutors for four and a half years and then left the office to make more money as a defense attorney. You know, another was at the office for four years and left to make more money in private practice. Another has been a public defender for 10 years and has never been involved in prosecution. And so, you know, I, they haven't supervised anything. I don't think they've started any programs. I stayed at the prosecutor's office because I was committed to it. And I had been tapped as a supervisor, felony team captain. I learned how to manage other deputies, how to inspire them, how to hold them to a high standard. Same thing with being head of district and family court. You learn how to be a supervisor. I was approached, uh, I went to Malcolm Banks' funeral. We had prosecuted him as U.S. Attorney, but we, came, we became friends after that. And a woman approached me in the parking lot and said, you know, when you were head of district and family court, I came up to you one day because I was getting harassed and teased by another clerk every day. And she said, about my accent. And she said, hey, I'm Filipino, I have an accent. And you met with the woman, with the head of the clerical section, and we talked about it. And she said, oh, it's just teasing. And you said, no, it's not. It's harassing. It's making her not want to come to work. This ends today. And it did. 
And that's the kind of thing you just deal with as a supervisor. I saw another branch supervisor when I got up there. He's massaging a woman's shoulder, working at a computer. I called him and said, he said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, she doesn't mind. I said, she is not in a position, an equal bargaining position to tell you to stop. It ends today. He then asked for a transfer out of the section. That's fine. But you've got to deal with stuff as a supervisor. So, you know, it's like there's nothing else for them to criticize me for about that. And the programs that I had started, whether it's Weed and Seed when I was U.S. Attorney, whether it's Hope Probation when I was a judge, have, respond, have worked tremendously well. I'm the rare judge who believes in criminal justice policy being based on data and research. You know, not on gut feelings or anecdote or this is the way we've always done it. And so as a judge, it's like I'm a big believer in evidence. You make a claim, show me the evidence mm -hmm. if you want to be successful in court. So you're known for Hope Probation and the Weed and Seed Program. Yeah. I'd like to talk about those two. First, okay. what is Hope Probation and what is the difference between Hope Probation and probation as usual? Okay, well in regular probation, the probation officers maybe have 150 cases, 150 felony clients, and they try to work with them. And some people do well, they're scared, they follow the rules, but many don't. They have methamphetamine problems, they have thinking problems, maybe rebellious, don't want to listen to authority, uh, and so they violate the rules. Well, the problem in regular probation is the probation officers didn't have any mechanism to bring them back to court unless it was for a revocation of probation and requesting the five or ten year prison term underlying it. So, of course, positive drug tests, missed appointments, they would tend to give people chances. And we have very good POs, they're all social workers, maybe 30% of the POs across the country are social workers. The rest are former law enforcement, which can lead to a tail em, nail em, jail em kind of a approach. Whereas our folks are, are trying to help, but they didn't have a mechanism to have a proportionate sanction. I saw, I took over Marie Milk's calendar when I was down in the circuit court building, and I could see the sanctions part was broken. And so I thought to myself, how did we raise our kid? How was I raised? Your parents tell you they care about you, but if you misbehave, you do something wrong, your parents do something about it immediately. Then you can tie together a bad behavior, a bad choice with a consequence and learn from it. So I thought, you know, let's, let's do that with probation. Is it possible? So if they test positive for drugs and admit it, I wanted them arrested on the spot. Go to the jail, we'd have a hearing a couple of days later. And I'd let them out because they screwed up by using, but they didn't make it worse by lying about it or running away. We're trying to do something really difficult here in Hope Probation. That's change people's thinking to change their behavior. So in regular probation, I think it would surprise the public to learn. The typical consequence for using drugs is the PO talking to you. There's no court referral. There's no sanctions at all. And so it's, you know, and, and here's an example of a, of a case, State versus Hodge. It, it's been filed, so it's public record. This guy had 42 separate probation violations and had never been referred back to court because the probation officer has total discretion or control in regular probation how to deal with it. We're talking 16 admissions to cocaine use, getting a DUI, not going to treatment, un admitting to drinking, admitting to other, with no court referral at all. And so I thought, we've got to change that. So I worked with Shirley Noy from probation, and I told her what I wanted to do, essentially go back in that 20 or 30 violation motion to revoke probation. 
and give a, give a swift, certain, consistent, and proportionate jail sanction for each one. So in hope probation, you test dirty for drugs and admit it, you get arrested on the spot, two business days in jail. You test dirty and deny it, you're let go, you report to Judge Alm's courtroom next week, but we send it out for a gas chromatograph test. If, if the lab confirms it, you're either in denial or you're lying and you're wasting everybody's time. It's 15 days in jail. And if they're working or going to school, job training, I'll let them do it on five weekends. The first time after that, it's straight. Worse yet, they run away. If they run away and law enforcement has, has, to, law enforcement has to look for them, it's 30 days. And if that happens repeatedly, they go to Halaba prison or women's because their actions have shown us that they either can't or don't want to do probation. But it all starts with a warning hearing. And the first words out of my mouth are, everybody in this courtroom wants you to succeed on probation. You know, your attorney does, the prosecutor, the deputy sheriff, the taxpayers of Hawaii, whether they yeah. know it or not. It's, it's now, I think, $54,000 a year to house people in Hawaii's prisons. And I said, but you're an adult, and I can't control what you do, and I can't control what I do. So from now on, every violation of probation, you're going to go to jail. Mm -hmm. But it's proportion. I tell them what the sanctions are. When I was on a, t a trip once, Rick Perkins, Judge Perkins, who covered for me, yeah. a guy showed up late, like four hours late at the probation office. Okay. They gave him a drug test. He was clean. So Perkins thought, you know, he ought to get something less than the two days that somebody who uses drugs, even if they admit it. So he locked him up in the cell block at the courthouse for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, no newspaper, no cell phone. God, Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual, right? For the rest of the day. So those are the four sanctions. So at the warning hearing, we tell people we want them to succeed, but then we tell them, cell block, you're late but you're clean, admit two days, deny, lab confirms 15, run 30, and this has worked extremely well from day one. Yeah, I didn't know the details of hope probation. I think my initial like understanding of it is much like the public's understanding of it. We see a guy mess up, a guy get arrested, and then a guy get released. And we think, oh, this guy is a, a menace to society. He's already been reprimanded and he's back out after the two days or he's back out after the week or something. But what people miss, like how you said is, under the old system, there could be, you know, little slaps on the wrist by the probation officer, and then he doesn't even get that consequence that the judge or the court can go ahead and give. So right. that's a huge difference. And I want to point out that I too thought like, gosh, it's just guys continually getting revoked and going back to court. But the other way around is somebody's life just gets thrown away and they get resentenced after how many? Countless violations as well, right? Absolutely. So people, whether they're, you know, first off, a judge makes the call, prison or probation. Hope has nothing to do with that. If they're on probation, then the question is, do we watch them closely in hope with jail sanctions for violation or on regular probation with no sanctions? And so, the, you know, so guys in hope are going to be in the news because there's so many of them. That's partly the case. Unlike most boutique court programs that have 50, 75, 100 or more people in it. In Hope, when I left, I was supervising more than 2,000 felony offenders in Hope. And, the, and there was another judge that had maybe 300. So people in regular probation are, are, get a bunch of chances. People on Hope get chances with sanctions every time. Yeah. So the question is, who gets arrested for new crimes more often? And fortunately, we have data on that. UCLA and Pepperdine did research. 
The people in Hope got arrested for new crimes 55% less often than regular probation. It was a home run. A 10% reduction in recidivism is cause for celebration. 55%, unbelievable. And failures and going to prison, 48% fewer days sentenced or served. Same thing, that's almost a 50% decrease. We asked them to look at Native Hawaiians. Native Hawaiians are both in hope and in probation as usual. In hope though, they get their probation revoked and go to prison 35% less often than if they're in regular probation. And, and as I said, because the hope judge has so many clients, over 2,000 that they're supervising, that means thousands of all sorts of defendants have succeeded on probation because they're in hope and didn't go to prison. Hundreds of Native Hawaiians have succeeded on probation because they were lucky enough to be in hope rather than regular probation. So hope is a lot tougher than regular probation. So, but you know, there's research out there and, and 32 states, 33 states and one territory, Guam, are now doing versions of hope. Some are doing it great, getting good results. Some are doing it lousy because they only focus on the sanctions. Mm -hmm. Whereas hope really has three parts. The sanctions are just to make everything work better mm -hmm. and to teach accountability. But you also have probation officers who care and are going to be consistent. You also, you also have, have to have a judge who understands addiction, uh, is going to be encouraging, but is going to hold people accountable and give them a jail sanction every time. And if they run away too much, send them to prison. So you need all three. Yeah, and the implementation is so key when you have like a program, especially when you're trying to get people at scale, not just the 50 right. you know, person group, the 1,000 person group, everything changes with scale. Yes. So are there any last things that you want to talk about for the future of HOPE? Where do you see it being implemented? Do you see any changes being made or sure. modifications? Well, I, I think it should expand in probation because the model, but the model has to be followed, mm -hmm. you know? A jail sanction every time that's proportionate. Cell block two days, fifteen thirty. It's work. Don't don't break it. But but I think you know we did a we did a pilot in pretrial. Great results. The people in Hope pretrial got arrested for new felonies, forty two percent less often than regular pretrial. So it's but it's the kind of thing that you know there's got to be money for treatment. And actually we we started Hope with zero dollars, no press. I even forgot to tell the chief justice for some reason about it. And then uh, once it, 18 months into it, we went to the legislature. And the attorney general's office had kept stats showing like a 90% reduction in positive drug tests and misappointment. They gave us $1.2 million. We used 770000 of that for drug treatment slots. And every year, it's part of the judiciary budget now. The other money was for probation officers and drug testers. But you're going to need treatment. And we have some very good treatment programs around. I've gone to visit all of them. They're all supportive, whether it's Ho'omaukeola on the Waianae Coast, whether it's Hinamauka, whether it's Salvation Army ATS, Poelani. As Alan Johnson, the CEO of Hinamauka, said, treatment works, but it works even better if they're in hope. Yeah. Because there are sanctions. He talks about a guy Friday night getting cravings. Wanting to leave, but he said, oh, if I leave, warrant goes out, Judge Alm's going to put me in jail. So I stick the weekend, and then the, and then the cravings dissipate, and I stay with the program. And one last thing I wanted to add. I think it's important for people to understand that, yeah, if you just arrest somebody, charge them, put them in custody, in the short term, you totally make that area safer because you remove somebody who's doing like a wrongful act or suspected of doing yeah. wrongful acts. But in the long term, you 
totally like kneecap a poor guy who might have a substance abuse issue or might be going through some sort of issue, a mental health issue, whatever right. it is, we have to put in the time and the effort, and it's really hard, but we have to do it to help rehabilitate somebody because, yeah, you'll be safer for a few weeks or a few months if they're in custody, but they get out again. And if, they right. don't, if you don't rehabilitate them and address the drug issue, put them on probation, put them on supervision, the cycle continues. You could revoke them the first time they violate it and send them to prison. Yeah. But they're gonna sit around and talk about getting high and breaking into your house. The, the, the stats show that hope probationers randomly drug tested still, as opposed to regular probation, where you only get drug tested when you see your PO, so you know when it's coming up for your appointment. The hope people tested positive 72% less often than the regular probation guys. So you're absolutely right. We're trying to change their thinking and change their behavior. They came back seven years later in 2014 to do a follow-up study when people were off probation just to see if any of this stuck. And the guys that had been in HOPE, the 330 in this big study group that Pepperdine did, uh, were arrested for new drug crimes like 52% less often than the people that had been in regular probation. And the return to prison rate was still half. Almost no criminal justice program has legs. It doesn't have sustainability because it takes it. But also, uh, one thing at the warning hearing, if I would have sent the person to prison at sentencing, and I was the toughest sentencer in the courthouse, I'll tell them that everything I said, Mr. X, applies, except if you run away once, you get the open term. Best predictor of future behaviors, past behavior and current behavior. I think you're going to run, you're going to commit crime. So one of these guys who was son of a major organized crime figure said to me, what if, uh, what if somebody does perfectly on hope? And I, and I thought to myself, damn it, I should have thought of that a few years ago. I said, if somebody can go two years without any violations, I'll terminate their probation. Mm -hmm. Two years later, he's standing in front of me. And I said, Good for you. He said, I'm amazed. I've been a career criminal since I was 15. Now I'm married. I have a kid. I'm working for a refrigeration company. We're cha changing out all the, all the air conditioning at Manila Bay. So my boss wants me to I said, you did what you said. As of today, your probation is terminated. The researchers looked. The 100 people that had gotten that early termination in the two years before they came back in 2014, not a single one had been arrested for anything. They had changed their lives way to go yeah. I think it's important that that message gets out because there are a lot of like nuance like angles that you have to go ahead and understand otherwise you just see the headlines you get outraged you, right. you, you, you share the article on social media and right. then the rage just continues but right. these are people there's a human cost we have right. to help rehabilitate well and like you say in midweek sometimes one person in there in hope and the others two mm -hmm. you know sometimes not at all but we our probation department, felony probation in Honolulu, actively supervises 3,800 felony probation. probation. About 2,500 of them are in hope. So you are going to hear the, you know, hope in the news and think, wow, does this work? Again, go to the research. The research shows people in hope get arrested for new crimes 55% less often than regular probation. They go to prison half as often. The research is clear. Any of my candidates criticizing hope now either are misinformed or they're trying to mislead the public. You know, and all I can say is look at the research. So uh, another um, kind of like an unclear or complicated issue is what we should do about building a new prison. What is your position on a new jail to, I'm sorry, prison, jail, whatever. It's actually a jail or a prison. You could clarify well, that to replace OCCC. I'm a little surprised. Some of my opponents don't know the difference between a jail and a prison. <laughs> jail is pretrial 
incarceration if you can't make bail currently, or as a violation, a sanction for a violation of probation. That is OCCC. OCCC is our jail. Halava is a prison. So you cannot, or women's, you cannot get four years in jail. You know, it's got to be a prison. Uh, what I would do is we're going to replace the jail. It's on the rail line. There's no question at all. I really think our governor, our lieutenant governor, our congressional group should do a full court press to buy the federal detention center. Mm -hmm. I was there at U.S. Attorney when it got built. $170 million, $170 million. It is still in great shape. It isn't located near anyone. You don't have a NIMBY problem. The closest people living to it, it's out by the airport. A lot of people probably have no idea where it is. It's a tall building. It looks like a poor man's Elikai, but with narrow windows. Seven stories tall. That's our federal detention facility. The only people that live nearby are people at Hickam, and there's a big wall around that. We could pick. My guess is we could buy that back for $170 million, what we paid, what it, was, what it cost to begin with from the federal government, and then use maybe $100 more million for programs on mental health and drugs and avoid buy, building a new jail, which right now they say costs $525 million. I don't think anyone believes it would be built for that. It would be a turnkey operation. It's right at the airport. It's closer to court. To me, it makes so much sense. Let's do that. And then any money we can get as a state, fix our crumbling jails on the neighbor islands. They're even in worse shape than OCCC. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's the answer to it. Yeah, and I'd like to add a few more things. It's also a really good way to make sure that we end the use of the private prisons on the mainland. If we have better facilities here, we don't have to ship people off on those prison sentences. Yeah. And you want people who are local to not be shipped off, unfortunately, away from their families to Arizona. Although we could have another discussion, which we'll save for another time, <laughs> on the quality of the two different prisons. I think we just need to up the local quality and having the federal detention center might be like a significant step. Absolutely. And I, I, it's shameful that we send our prisoners out of state to do their time. Yeah, yeah. But I talked to some of them, and we won't go into this much, they would rather go to Arizona, even if it cuts off their family, because there are programs at this private prison that they don't have here. We should be helping our prisoners get educated, get degrees, maybe learn some trades, some skills. Hopefully we can do that here in the future. But we should stop this practice of sending our guys to do their time. It's bad for recidivism to be cut off from your family that way. But it's such an indictment of our current local system to have these guys choose to go to the mainland because they have more programs there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll end that um, on one last story that I'd like to add in. So I just bailed out a guy from OCCC who had been extradited. He won his appeal. Um, he had been proven guilty by jury originally. Um, he appealed it, went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, he won his appeal, then it got kicked back down to circuit court. So now he's eligible for bail. And he was in Arizona and he got extradited back. And oh my God, he, he talked about, he got a certification um, so that he could be like a 
braille sort of mm. technician or something. So he had like a calling that he learned because you have a lot of time to think about things in jail. And he was talking about all prison. the different, I'm sorry, prison. And he was talking about all the things, the programming that they had up there so you can get out and have like a certification. You could do like plumbing certifications, electrical certifications. Jobs. Jobs, yes. Jobs. So when he gets out, he's not, and I felt bad, last thing on that, I felt bad because I picked up this kid he had the advantage of having a box sent to him from his family with like a cell phone charged up and everything, clothes and everything. But a lot of times when people get out, they need like a wingman to help them out. I picked him up, helped him get hooked up with his Airbnb, uh, made sure that his phone was uh, all situated. He had like a change of clothes. People need those services. I think we got to not forget that. Absolutely. They need help. Absolutely. Good for you for doing that. Uh, well, he's my client too. So I was like, ah, I felt bad for him. He's in custody for two years and then won his appeal, so hopefully he wins his case. We'll see how that works out. Um, more controversy. Um, the emergency releases due to COVID-19. What do you think could be improved the next time there's a pandemic? Because there's always going to be a need to safeguard the people who are in custody in case of a virus or something else. Sure. Well, uh, one of the things is the, you know, f the public defenders filed a an original motion the blanket petition to, to let people out and moss but people have to understand that's a defense attorney's job their job is not to fix the system it's not to seek justice it's to help their individual client who's charged with the crime and i objected to that and i thought there ought to be a case-by-case -case review so it's in front of a judge and special master dan foley he took that position i was happy to see it and the prosecutors and defense could agree on releasing some people. And as you know, jails normally release people in a matter of course. They make bail or their sentences pile. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the police, I think really to their credit, did a, a good job of not making arrests and deferring it if it didn't hurt public safety or uh, giving a citation instead of arrest. What I would have done at that point is not release anyone else and put the responsibility on the Department of Public Safety to do quarantining either at OCCC, you could use the gym, you could use uh, make portable structures. Inmates have done that before in Hurricane Iniki. You, you could go to the convention center for two weeks, make sure they're, they're symptom free, and then go back to the de department. That would have saved all of the any of the arrests that they got because they were released and we should be testing every single person at OCCC whether it's an ACO, an adult corrections officer, a civilian employee or visitors, any new arrivals coming coming in, any defendants. We've got to test everybody to know what we're doing. But a lot of it, I would put the burden on the Department of Public Safety. I think they'd be stepping up to the plate to handle it, to do the quarantining inside, the testing inside, and not release people after a certain point out into the public. Yeah, and props to the Department of Public Safety. They probably didn't get enough credit for handling the situation the way that they did. Um, Attorney General Connors at the Public Safety Committee uh, meeting pointed out that they did have protocols in place mm -hmm. for an outbreak. We didn't know it was COVID-19, but they did have like a system like ready to go for when there was an outbreak of some sort. And here we are today. I believe there is only one um, positive test for somebody who was in a jail or a prison and then got released. I, I saw the headline and it made it look like they had it in custody, but it was. I don't. I don't think it was at OCCC though. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Federal. Oh, yeah, it's at the FTC. It was at FTC. Okay, cool. So, yeah, yeah pro props to props to DPS. You know right. what I mean? They they take criticism here and there, but this one they deserve to have some credit because of the way that they handled it. Yeah. Next session, a state legislator has proposed a bill to elect the chief of police. So there's the conversation of electing a chief of police versus the current um, set up where we have one appointed by the mayor. Um, what do you think of the idea of electing a police chief? I, I really don't like the idea. Uh, bad enough, I feel, as a judge and former U.S. attorney running for office. Uh, but having a police chief be a politician and maybe catering to the whims of the public at, at some you know, crucial moment. I think the police commission being involved, appointing uh, the, the person, they're all appointed by the mayor, I think is probably the better way to go. And even in the current Kealoha crisis, mm -hmm. uh, he quit when he was uh, first indicted. If he was elected, he might have said, I, I am presumed innocent. I'm not going anywhere mm -hmm. unless and until I get convicted. And that would have dragged it out for a lot longer than it would have. Because he left, they were able to get a fresh start, get Chief Ballard appointed, and move on. So I really, I really think the, the current system of appointing a police chief is probably, is probably the best way to go. Thank you for adding that. Um, it all kind of goes back to trust in the chief of police and trust in the prosecutor's office. So I think electing the police chief was just a, a roundabout way to say, hey, we need to go ahead and get somebody in that we could trust. We need to have an election. I think that's the intention. Um, so circling back to that key crucial point of trust in the prosecutor's office, what would you use to like help guide up and coming prosecutors on what to do and what not to do? Like how would you sort of mentor or uh, train that's exactly what it is. This is often their first job coming out of law school. So it's creating a culture of high ethical conduct and of doing justice, not, not just winning cases. Mm -hmm. And there was a uh, famous case called St Berger versus the United States, a Supreme Court case, uh, that talked about uh, there's a two, two-fold goal. Guilt should not escape nor innocence suffer. You can strike hard blows, but not foul ones. Your job, as, a, as I said, your job as a prosecutor is to do justice. Your job as a defense attorney is to help your client. And if I was charged with a crime, I'd want somebody looking out for my yep. interest 100%. The prosecutor is to be fair. So if somebody gets charged or indicted, and then you get closer to trial and you see evidence that shows, hey, maybe the guy didn't do it, you should be dismissing the case. Nobody should be charged unless you are convinced the person did it beyond a reasonable doubt and that you have the evidence that can prove it. Because indicting somebody can ruin the reputation. Yep. So you got to be careful and do it the right way. I was the first career prosecutor to be appointed to circuit court in Honolulu ever. The Judicial Selection Commission, one of their questions was, you've been a career prosecutor. Why would you th think you'll be sensitive to defendants' rights or needs? And I told them, I had two the last two cases I did at the prosecutor's office, one was the murder of a police officer, David Ronk, by Clyde Pinero. Two other deputies had done it before. The convictions didn't stick or as a hung jury. I did it the third time. 
And Mr. Pinero is in prison for life without parole oh, wow. to the end of his days. That's the max. And he was 20 years old when it happened. You, wow. you kill a police officer, you murder a police officer, life without parole. Wow. The other case was a woman who was so caretaker for her mother at a studio apartment in Punalu'u. She didn't have any respite care. Every night the sun would go down, the mom would start screaming, thinking the world was coming to an end. She took care of her without any help and eventually put a pillow over her mouth and smothered her. It was charged as murder. I looked at it, I interviewed people, I read it, and then I read her diary. She had a mental breakdown and killed her. So I went to see Keith Kaneshiro and I said, normally the defense, like in domestic violence cases, brings up extreme mental emotional disturbance for which there is a reasonable explanation. Normally we think it's BS as prosecutors. Uh, and so you defeat it. But I said to Keith, in this case it applies. He said, well, it has to be murder. I said, well, you're going to find somebody else to do it because I'm not doing it. I'm not doing the case. And he, and he eventually found some, some other deputy who later became a judge. He took it to trial. He tried to get murder. The jury came back in 15 minutes with manslaughter. I think the right, the right decision. And so sometimes the cases you don't charge or you charge a different way are just as important as the ones you do. That's part of being ethical. But part of it is training the deputies. And you know, so they're more skilled in court and more ethical, then they'll be able to get favorable plea agreements. We've seen a lot of plea agreements in the newspaper. And as a judge, I know there's always something more behind it. But one, you know, but over the years, there's just too many unfavorable plea agreements. And I think we could make that better by creating a culture of excellence, a culture of ethics, and of doing justice, not just winning cases. This is for my law enforcement peeps. Um, there's a really frustrating process that a lot of people in law enforcement sort of like go through. There's somebody who they did an arrest on, they might have submitted you know, their report. Um, the defendant does not get charged initially, is released pending investigation or RPI'd, and then like weeks or months later, they gotta go serve uh, the grand jury indictment that comes out and go arrest the guy or the gal a second time putting them back in when it's really time consuming to try to find somebody the second time. And especially after weeks or months or sometimes in certain cases over a year has passed, now they gotta locate somebody. Um, it seems like the work is being done twice. Are there any sort of like innovations or any sort of like changes do you think that if elected as city prosecutor you could implement so that we don't have this double work situation for law enforcement officers. Well, and even worse, they may have committed other crimes in the meantime, especially if it's a property crime like UCPBs or burglaries yeah. or thefts. That may happen. That is something I have shared this frustration for really? years. Okay. And I've absolutely thought, I think the answer to it is where there's a will, there's a way. You know? And if you could nip this in the bud, get the person charged, and depending on what the record is, watch them, maybe put them in pre-trials so we can drug test them, keep an eye on them. And if he, he, if he can't follow the rules in pre-trial, we'll keep him in custody until his trial. But I absolutely think there's a way to do that. I'll look at it, trying to get it done. So if we have a good case against somebody, you charge them right away. You hold them in custody. You take them to a preliminary hearing or grand jury. You get them held, and you try to get them off this path of committing these crimes because they may do a whole spree before they finally get yeah, up. or both ways it happens. Sometimes it's the wake-up call that somebody needs. Yeah. They move on with their lives. They've made improvements. And then it's the old saying, you might be done with the past, but the past ain't done with you. <laughs> I've literally yeah. had clients that, you know, they were in the military, they get restationed. And because they're now, now on the mainland, the bail gets artificially jacked up higher because 
it's easy to make the um, argument that, oh, they left the jurisdiction, they're, they're risky, they're on the mainland now and they get artificially high bails. I think initially charging is the way to go and I hope upon your election, if you get elected, that there's innovations to change that because the law enforcement crowd will love you for that. Absolutely. And I'm all about trying innovative programs, mm -hmm. about trying new things. I'm open to discussing all sorts of things because you can get good ideas, maybe from other places on the mainland, maybe it comes up here. But I also want to do programs that have been proven to work here, like Weed and Seed. Yeah, please, go into Weed and Seed. What exactly is the Weed and Seed program? And if it's re-implemented, what would be the changes for today? Okay. It, the idea is you identify a ge geographic area, you go in and talk to the community, and you ask them, what are your big crime problems? Mm -hmm. So the first one we did was uh, Kali Palama in Chinatown. We had Stu and Rice at Kailani Elementary School, great principal, Charlotte White. It's across from Mayor Wright's, down the road from Tamashiro Market. And I asked the residents, what is the biggest crime problem here? And they said, well, you're the expert. You tell us. I said, yeah, but I live in Kamuki. I don't live here. They said it's those drug dealers on Pool Lane. They're there all day, every day. They harass people. They break into cars. Our kids have to walk to school at Kailani Elementary School through this gauntlet of drug dealers teaching them that the crooks are in control. The other thing they said is these cars speed up and down Pool Lane to get between King Street and Vineyard. Okay. So based on that, guess what? We had undercovers go in, make buys from everybody selling drugs. They got arrested. Then narco vice officers took their place and sold drugs to whoever came up. We have a video. It's like a McDonald's drive through No offense, McDonald's. Uh -huh. The police told us, cell block, we can take 30 people. We got 30 arrests inside 40 minutes. And uh, the... the uh, City Council pulled out all the stops, and within two weeks, there are speed bumps placed on Pool Lane. Imagine the credibility we had with the neighborhood. They said those are the two big problems. They got solved immediately. The idea is you weed out the, the crime in an area. And that site ran from the Cocaea Canal next to Honolulu Community College to Bethel Street, Nimitz Highway to the freeway. And uh, we did about 200 drug cases we took to the U.S. Attorney's Office, all the other uh, street crimes and uh, all these other cases went to state court. We set up a separate weed and seed courtroom in district court on Alakea Street. Uh, the net result of all, and the seed efforts paid off too. Uh, we talked to the sisters at St. Francis. They gave us a two-bedroom unit in Kukui Gardens, which is just Cocoa Head of Mayor Wrights, to be a Head Start program because the community wanted that. We got Sports Authority donating bats, balls, and gloves. And we set up an after-school sports program at Kayolani Elementary. Lilio Klani Trust paid for an hour of tutoring before the custodian who ran the program got off work. And we set up a weed and seed house at Mayor Wright Homes. The net result of all these things working together, the effort I led, led to a reduction in crime of 70% in Kalihi Palama and Chinatown in three years. We're talking 3,000 felonies down to 750. We're talking 7,600 misdemeanors down to 2,300. It changed the character of both neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. The Samoan families and Mayor Wrights started sleeping on their mats outside again. Mm -hmm. Crime stopped there. Mm -hmm. and, it, and in Chinatown, businesses could open. At the time, local people were afraid to park their cars, go down there, the car would get vandalized, they might get harassed. It's getting like that again it now. It is getting like that again, but all these hipster restaurants, bars, art exhibits yeah. could thrive and flourish. You're absolutely right, it's back. If I get in, I will make every effort to reinvigorate, bring weed and seed back to Chinatown, back to Kali Palama, then hopefully expand 
uh, eastward toward Ala Moana and Kaka'aka, which was done before, and then maybe go to Waikiki too. You, you want to know something really stupid? I've been licensed as a bail bondsman since 2004, and I always saw, what is this weed and seed thing? I always thought it had to do with marijuana weed. <laughs> and see, I didn't know it was weed out the crime. I was like, what are they talking about weed and then the seed? Is this like a drug diversionary thing? I so got that wrong. Yeah. Well, the problem, you came in after I left as U.S. attorney, and I okay. made it a priority to do it. So there was a lot of public, uh, you know, effort on this, the public knew about it, the people in Chinatown loved it, and now there is so much more infrastructure uh, existing now. Look at American Savings Bank, they built a big huge building right across from Ala Park. Yeah. They will be a great partner. The security guys are former HPD there. There are all these restaurants that are paying us private security to help them with security. You know. If we can get this started, the residents will find it safer, the businesses will find it safer too. I think we can even help a number of the homeless folks because a bunch of them, they have drug and alcohol problems. Well, we have successful strategies like drug court, like mental health court, like hope probation. They're miserable, they get victimized all the time. I think we can both help them with their drug and alcohol, mental health issues, and get them out of some per merchant's doorway in Chinatown where they're living and defecating and making it impossible for that merchant to be successful. I think it's a win-win uh, when we do that. Yeah, very good. So you're born and raised in Hawaii. Um, you're a comic key guy. I love, uh, Kamaki, keep it Kamaki, love everything in there. Uh, do you have any, you know, favorite restaurants, spots, or stories for the Kamaki area? Absolutely. And we, we like to go to, to Thai for, well, now it's more takeout, right? I yep. mean, that's our life. For now, yeah. <laughs> but 12th Avenue Grill is a nice place Great for a little fancier stuff uh, to Thai for. Kimchi, too. Uh, you, you've got one restaurant after another down there. Big City Diner. Vanilla and Chocolate Bakery. Absolutely. There, Pipeline right? Cafe, yeah. the Coffee Talk. It's, it's almost you turn around and there's another restaurant there. But it's a nice neighborhood. It's safe. It's, a, you know, generally it's, an, it's a nice place. I'm, I'm really happy to be spending time there. Yeah, there you go. Keep it common key. Well, I think it's uh, in this election, again, as we've talked about, is all about restoring trust to that office. And I think, you know, I have the drive. I have the determination. I feel a sense of obligation to go back to that office where my wife and I started, get it cleaned up, get it on track, and move forward. And I think based on all my supervisory experience and successful supervisory experience, uh -huh. and I have a track record of reducing crime. You know, I'm open to new ideas, innovative ideas, and we will do some without question. But at the same time, we'll bring back the stuff that's worked before. I have no doubt we can clean up Chinatown again. We can get the crime down there. We can help the homeless. And then we can expand to other areas. And then the other thing is going to other neighborhoods, sitting down with them, finding out from them what their crime problems are. And if they would like to participate with us in Weed and Seed down the road, we want to participate with them. Each community is different. And I'm a kind of a type A personality, but I've learned to listen over the years and listen to the community about what their crime problems are so we can address that. We never would have thought, I never would have thought of those speeding on Pua Lane and how a simple thing like speed bumps will solve that problem. But you can see how a mom would not let her kids play on the sidewalk because kids are going to chase the ball out into the street and get run over. So that's just as important to them as drug dealing or anything else. 
So if I'm given the chance, I want to get that office back on track and make it a place that the public can trust and people want to work at. Yeah, and through um, the podcast evolution, I've had just about everybody on. I'm super stoked that it seems like everybody that I've met and had the honor to, to do on a podcast seems like the next city prosecutor uh, will definitely be uh, a high character person uh, who will focus on trust in the office. So I think the field is just a great field. And I thought after researching all this and getting to know uh, you and your programs in the past, I think we can't go wrong with whoever the top few, like whoever it goes, right? Because this is an important election because if you get over 50% of the primary vote, you win, right? Or is there a runoff? Could you explain that last part? 50% plus one vote, they win it outright in the primary. Otherwise, the top two move on to the general. Ah, which would make things really fun, but we'll see if uh, one candidate could get the 50 or over. So uh, last thing, if somebody wants to continue their education and maybe follow some of your interviews or see your platform on a website, where could they go to find out more about Judge Alm? SteveAlmForProsecutor.com. They can also go to the Facebook page. They can also go to Instagram. There's all sorts of ways to learn about it and hear from other people that I've worked with in the past who are supporting my candidacy. Right on. So everybody out there who's watching this or listening, please get out there and vote and uh, do your research on these fine candidates. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Right on.